It's January 20, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. Glad to join you again today. This week, nothing but good news in the world of rheumatology. Let's begin with the effects of biosimilars that could lead to a nocebo effect. Nocebo, that's like a negative placebo. Nocebo is defined as a negative uh, uh, expectation the patient has when receiving a particular treatment. So, for instance, if you get a side effect while receiving uh, a placebo, that would sort of be a nocebo effect, would it not? So, I bring this up because a recent study that looked at non-medical switching of biosimilars, a big topic because we're going to see a lot of biosimilar action in 2023 here in the United States, Um, This particular study looked at treatment failures when um, patients were uh, switched from their originator drug to a a biosimilar. 140 patients uh, of those, 51 uh, stayed on the originator and 89 were switchers. And guess what? The non-switchers were more likely to improve than the switchers, meaning switchers didn't do as well. So improvement was seen in 68% of the non-switchers and 26% of the, those who switched. Moreover, the, uh, those who switched had non-medical switching were more likely to uh, worsen, 9% versus 1%. This is an, a, an expectation bias that we would call a nocebo effect. We might experience this in January, I guess, first quarter here of 2023, but certainly by mid-2023, I think there's going to be eight biosimilars of adalimumab in play. A recent study looked at uh, giant cell arteritis patients and the diagnostic and monitoring utility of ultrasound. This would be ultrasound of temporal arteries and of large vessels looking for typical findings of GCA like halo effect, etc. In this study of 47 newly diagnosed GCA patients, 72, uh, 44 of 47, that's like, ooh, that's over 90%, actually had a positive ultrasound for um, giant cell arteritis. Uh, this was seen in 72% of patients with temporal arteritis uh, and also 72% of patients with la- large vessel vasculitis. Um, so I'm not sure that should be over 90%, but nonetheless, the number was good. The sensitivity um, actually was good enough that it showed significant changes over time with serial measures, enough to basically be um, somewhat predictive against um, the presence of future activity and whether or not you were going to relapse or stay in remission. So this was, I think, think an interesting citation because many of you actually are relying more on ultrasound in the assessment of GCA patients. Uh, another study looked at polymyalgia rheumatica and what happens to them after they're diagnosed. This is an international survey of almost 400 GPs and about 937 rheumatologists, and they showed that when a GP diagnosed PMR, um, or I should say when they had a case of suspected PMR, only 25% were actually referred to the rheumatologist for a second opinion and potential diagnosis. On the other hand, when the rheumatologist got these patients from the GPs, they returned half of them to the GP for future care and monitoring. You know, uh, and moreover, it looks like the room from a rheumatology standpoint, there was a delay in seeing these patients of, by more than two weeks. And when they got them, more than half of them were already on steroids. There's a problem here. 
there's a lot of PMR patients in the United States, maybe almost as much as rheumatoid arthritis as far as newly diagnosed cases. So the question is, um, what are we doing to see those patients? They're largely falling in the hands of GPs. GPs sell them, refer them to you. If you get them, you send them back to the GPs. Are the GPs really the people to be managing and monitoring a case that you've diagnosed with polymyalgia rheumatica? I think not. Again, I would cry here what I've always cried, that rheumatologists don't do a very good job of sending notes out to your community doc saying, this is who I need to see. If you send me this patient, I'll see them tomorrow. Instead, you passively wait for patients, for them to send you patients, and they do, and you're very full, but you're full of blank. You're full of patients that you probably don't want to see as much as a PMR or a newly diagnosed RA or a new ANCA-associated vasculitis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a, an important study. Um, how frequent is IBD? Well, a Danish study looked at over 6 million people and found 53,000 with new cases of IBD over an 18-year period. So it's not that common. More importantly, in this study that was published, I think, in GUT, was the journal, um, antibiotic exposure increased the risk of developing IBD, especially those who received antibiotics for gastrointestinal reasons, usually, over the age of 40. So the relative risk was about a 50% increased relative risk in that particular age group of 40 to 60. Now, if most of those or a lot of those were for GI symptoms, antibiotics, maybe the GI symptoms were IBD to begin with, right? But the question is, is it possible that antibiotics and frequent antibiotic use could lead to changes in microbiome and that could portend and, you know, a future autoimmune state and development of disease. This question has been brought up previously in JIA where it wasn't given a whole lot of credence because so many kids are already on antibiotics as it is. Nonetheless, interesting data from the GI world. Uh, a study from the cardi uh, from cardi cardiology journal, one that none of us usually would read, but I thought it was interesting and it showed that elevated uric acid levels were associated with new onset atrial fibrillation. This is from a very large Swedish study that um, was following patients longitudinally with a lot of tests and a lot of labs. And they showed those who had elevated serum uric acid levels had cardiovascular events and implications later on. More importantly, when you started looking at the different um, quartiles of uh, uric acid levels, and you looked at, an, at the bottom quartile, the, the, the lowest one, uh, and compared to the upper three, the upper three had an increasing risk of developing atrial fibrillation over time that ranged from a 10% increased risk in the second quartile to a 45% increased risk. Now, we know gout is associated with a lot of cardiovascular events um, and complications, including AFib. But again, now it's, these are not necessarily patients diagnosed with gout. These are patients just with elevated uric acid levels. How many people have rheumatoid arthritis in the United States? You know, I used to say 2 million, then studies said 1 million and 1.3. It's really hard to know. Um, a recent report came out that said that worldwide prevalence of RA was almost 5 million in 2020. And that's only looking at the like five or seven top major countries, you know, Japan and Europe and South America and, United, and North America, etc. Um, and more importantly, that that number is expected to grow. The market for RA treatment in 2021 was uh, nearly $41 billion. 
So Ari continues to be king of the hill on, on numbers and money spent. And there's a lot of tag-alongs that are going to ride on the coattails of RA, is my opinion. The market is expected to grow about 6% per year in the next 10 years. I have a friend who, who's taking, uh, who's got a major problem with pain um, and difficulties in managing pain and neuropathy. Um, and really nothing's worked. You know, you can fill in your own blank, but he's pretty much tried everything. Um, and he was recently put on um, naltrexone and says, wow, it's actually made, now it didn't make all the pain go away, but it gave a substantial reduction in pain. And this led me to look this up. Right now, naltrexone is mainly indicated in the management of those patients who have opioid dependence or alcohol dependence or, or abuse. Um, and it's meant to sort of help get patients off of those particular addictions. It does not have an indication for any pain management. Yet it is often advocated widely for a lot of different conditions, especially the pain world. And as you know, a lot of your fibromyalgia or uh, uh, widespread pain-like patients are often either on this or asking about this, and you don't have any data. And there is no data. I mean, what's out there is a few studies. One I saw, and I gave you the link for it, showed that it's equal to amitriptyline in the management of painful diabetic neuropathy as far as pain relief. That's impressive. I found about um, two or three uncontrolled, uncontrolled studies in fibromyalgia saying it works. I found you know, two or three that showed uh, against a placebo or an active comparator that showed it worked. But the numbers of people in these trials is like 31 and 17. And so there isn't great data even for fibromyalgia. How naltrexone modulates pain is unclear. But will naltrexone become part of your regimen in the future? I'm not using it. Anybody who wants it, I'm sending them to a pain guy and letting them management because I don't like to, I use off-label drugs all the time, but I got to know a lot about the drug before I start using it off-label, and that would be my advice. Let's play a game. Which of these true-false causes anthocytis? Ready? True-false. Um, easy one. Reactive arthritis. Right. It does. True. How about RA? Yes, it does. How about leprosy? Yes, it does. How about vitamin D deficiency? No, it doesn't. How about treatment with uh, fluoroquinolone antibiotics? Uh, you know, that causes a tendinopathy, not necessarily enthesitis. So that's like a maybe, but probably an wrong answer. The full list I put on here because of the next article I'm going to quote, and that include all the spondoarthropathies, uh, spondoarthropathies, leprosy, trauma, osteoarthritis, dish, acromegaly, fluorosis, retinoid therapy, hyper or hypo, parathyroidism, poem syndrome, and X-linked hypophosphatemia. Just a list, you know, put it, store it away for a rainy day. Um, there was a recent report that made me look up that list, and that was from the uh, sponsor AS Registry, a study of um, almost 750 spa patients showing that in that cohort, the number who had Achilles tendonitis would be, guess what? If you said 6%, you were right. It was 6.1% who had Achilles tendonitis at baseline. Obviously, over time, more would develop it. And what they found was patients who had enthesitis 
with spondyloarthritis overall had worse disease, more pain, worse BASDI scores, worse um, ASDAS CRP scores. Uh, and after two years of treatment, they were less likely to achieve a low disease activity state by ASDAS CRP, only 16% versus um, 32% in, in those without enthesitis. We've shown this before that dactylitis is another thing that is associated with worse overall outcomes in spondyloarthritis. Good to know when managing patients. I don't know if you've ever signed a contract for employment that had uh, a non-compete clause. I've been asked several times in my career to sign non-compete clauses and I refused. Um, I have run my own private practice for a number of years and I've never requested a non-compete clause because I don't think that that's right nor fair. I understand the rationale behind it. Why am I bringing this up? Well, it turns out that about half of all MDs are at some point in their career going to sign some sort of restrictive covenant. It turns out that currently the FTC is considering a new proposal that would ban these non-compete clauses. Uh, and while the AMA is sort of um, in favor of this, they, they, they also have something that makes them look politically correct. This uh, rule could save patients up to $148 billion. Um, I don't know where they come up with that number. Uh, and the question is, would you sign one? Should you sign one? Should you not? It does restrict your freedom, especially if you're going through a new employment situation in a new area and you don't know anyone and you truly don't know how it's going to work out. Because if it doesn't work out, you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to pack up all your bags, move, take your kids out of school and go 50 or 100 miles away. I don't like that. On the other hand, employers who want this, it is their protection so that you, the young person or the you know, person who's coming in to seek knowledge, um, doesn't come in, learn all the business practices, get all these patients, steal all these patients and leave and then compete against the people who taught you everything you know. I, I think that this is a, a medical conundrum for which there isn't a right answer. I just know that for me, uh, a non-compete a non clause wasn't going to work. So I sought employment always in situations where I didn't have a non-compete clause. Two articles about uh, mortality in psoriatic arthritis. There's this one study called the PSART-ID study of 1,200 PSA patients. Um, and it basically looked at them prior to the pandemic and during the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, PSA patients had the same mortality as the general population. Interesting, is it not? Since we know PSA patients are notorious for all their comorbidities, including cardiovascular comorbidities and obesity. But yet they have the same mortality as does the general population. However... Um, during the pandemic, mortality in their cohort doubled. It went from 5.1 to 10.86 per, I think it was 1,000 patient years, I think was the um, denominator there. But it doubled, um, and it really increased both in females, where it almost quadrupled, and males, where it clearly was a little less than doubled. Um, that says a lot about how the pandemic uh, altered the way we do practice in a way that wasn't good for our patients or that patient behavior uh, wasn't good for their long-term outcomes. I've um, been wanting to write an article for a long time about the unintended consequences 
of lockdown and you know what and what happened and there's a lot of little bits of evidence like this out there hopefully i'll put it together someday another more uh study that came out that was in MedPage today yesterday um and on our website was that when they looked at um, um mortality risks um as patients were the ones who had an increased mortality risk and not PSA. So in both these conditions, it turns out that there's a lot of individual studies that have mixed results, some suggesting, yes, there is an increased mortality risk. And you would assume that's because of the the chronic inflammation associated with it. Uh, Others say no. So they did a meta-analysis of 19 studies. um, And of these 19 studies, uh, most of seven were AS, 11 were in PSA, and then one in both. Uh, And overall, PSA patients, uh, as far as all-cause mortality, was not increased compared to the general population. However, when you start looking at subgroups of PSA patients, women, they do have a higher risk than do men compared to the general population. Or when you look specifically at different types of mortality, like cardiovascular respiratory infection, it was significantly elevated at 19%, 21%, or 300%, I think, more than... um, uh, the, the general population or those who didn't have those, those particular comorbidities. So, yes, yeah, some people with PSA have an increased mortality risk, but it's a subset. Women and women with comorbidities, that's probably who you should worry about. However, in AS, all-cause mortality was increased 64% um, compared to the general population, and cardiovascular mortality was increased 35% compared to the general mo- population. Now, why are they different? Hard to know. But the data is the data. You are who you are when it comes to PSA. That's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to be in Dallas on March the 18th and 19th or at home, glued to your TV set, watching Room Now Live. You can register now. There's early bird registration where it's dirt cheap. Um, you know, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, um, you know, youngins who are in training. Again, it's gigantically cheap uh, if you register before January 3rd or 31st. Go to roomnow.live to do so. We'll talk next week. Take good care and be safe.